invite you to turn to Psalm 143 and in the Forms and Prayers book to Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism. We're considering tonight those three things we must know to live and die in the joy of the comfort that we belong to Jesus. And we see something of those three things in Psalm 143, Psalm of David. Let's give our attention to the word of the Lord, this inspired song of the Lord. Psalm 143, a psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness answer me and in your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have been long dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. I spread out my hands to you. My soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies, and you I take shelter. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. For I am your servant. I invite you to read, leave the Bible open as we go through it this evening. But I invite you to turn in the uh, Forms and Prayers book, to page 202, where we have question and answer two of the Heidelberg Catechism, this Reformed Confession, a summary of what we believe based on Scripture. Lord, say one, we confess our only comfort that we belong to Christ. And then on page 202, question two asks, how many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And we confess three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I'm delivered from all my sins and misery. And third, how I'm to thank God for such deliverance, those three. Let's bow in prayer. O Lord Jesus Christ, stand among us, we pray, and break bread to our souls. Feed and nourish us as the sheep of your pasture. We pray, Lord, that as we look upon your word tonight, you would nourish us, encourage us, instruct us, correct us. Help us, O Lord, to believe on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, a rich man, a wealthy man, can live a very poor life. Someone can possess great wealth, but not live out of it a happy life, right? There are those who who know how to own wealth, but they don't know how to live out of their wealth. The same is true of Christian doctrine. There are those who who possess truths, but they don't live from them. You can 
have a great reform confession, a biblical confession. You can have learned it in catechism class. You might have it even put upon your wall, like Lord's Day 1, but not live out of it. And so it's important that the catechism, after it says in Lord's Day 1, that our only comfort is that we belong to Jesus Christ, that he bought us with his precious blood. Not a hair can fall from our head without the will of the Father in heaven. All things must work together for our salvation. Then question 2 asks... Well, what do you have to know to live and die in the joy of that comfort? What do you have to know to live in the joy of that comfort? What do you have to know to die in the joy of that comfort? It reminds us that question and answer one is not a museum piece. It's not this beautiful poetry of, of Lord's Day One that, that we just put behind glass and stare at from afar as, as a beautiful confession. It's, it's something that we're supposed to live out of. For the comfort God provides us. God's word doesn't demand that we live a meager existence. When he gives to us all this wealth in Christ Jesus, God's word nowhere demands that we live a meager life, that we sit upon the riches and don't touch them. No, but as somebody has said, we, we should live as kings. We should live royally. We should enjoy the treasures that we have in Christ Jesus. How can I live in this comfort? How can I die in this comfort? How can I live as a rich man in these riches of Christ? Well, the Catechism reminds us you have to know something. Three things. First, how great your sins and misery are. Second, how you're set free from them. And third, then how you're to live for the Lord, a life of gratitude. The whole of salvation is summed up in those ABCs of, of the Christian faith. We remember them sometimes, you know, as, as sin, salvation, service. That alliteration, sin, salvation, Service or the three in the bulletin here, we use the G words, guilt, grace, gratitude. Those are three essential components. They come up again and again, right? The whole storyline of the Bible is built around these three realities. Our, our Lord's Supper form calls us to examine ourselves in regard to these three things. Our baptism form reminds us that baptism is related to these three things. It comes up again and again. It becomes the it's actually the outline of the Heidelberg Catechism, isn't it? The three parts of the Heidelberg Catechism. But unfortunately, these three truths sometimes we treat as sterile doctrinal points. Again, it's a bit of, of head knowledge. We've learned these points. We've got them down cold. We learned the alliteration. Memorized it when I was a child. But to live and die in the joy of God's comfort, we have to live these three things. We have to know them experientially. These have to be components of our daily prayers and struggles and understanding of this world. And that's why I've chosen Psalm 143. Because here we see the believer engaged in a life persecuted by his enemies. But his prayers wrapped around these three realities. Psalm 143 will end where Lord's Day 1 began. Psalm 143 ends, I am your servant. I belong to Jesus. But it's striking, isn't it, that the stretch of road that David walks here in Psalm 143, a very difficult stretch of road, is one in which he wrestles in terms of these three realities, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And so if we thought those were just three things we memorized and put away, Psalm 143 teaches us differently. And so tonight, I'd like to look at this difficult stretch of road where the believer seeks comfort in terms of these three realities, guilt, grace, and gratitude. First of all, 
the psalmist is taken up with his guilt, isn't he? He begins in verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. And then in verse 2, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. Now throughout the Psalms we, we read the faithful servants of God, praying to God, calling upon God, but they're imperfect people, right? They're, they're praying to God out of a sense of a knowledge of their sin. And in fact, the Psalms are the stories of this, this experience with God, right? The believer in fellowship with God. And the more the believer walks in fellowship with God, the more he knows his sin. And that for two reasons. Number one, because the more you walk with God, the more you realize that you are unlike God in so many ways. Maybe you've had the experience, I know I have, of, of spending time with someone who, who's holiness or purity made you feel utterly unholy they speak with such purity they they engage others with such patience and sincerity but you know that feeling of of being so unholy next to such a person is just a pale reflection of what it really is to walk with God in the light of his word we as we stand before him as we as we see who he is we we sense Lord I am unlike you in so many ways you are God radiant purity. You're perfect in your faithfulness. You're infinite in your love. You are sinless in your anger. But not me. We're often oblivious to our sin and how deep it goes and how ugly it is. But God's presence, God's revelation of himself exposes it. But, but as we walk with God, we also come to know our sin more deeply because of the sorrows of this world. As you go through the Psalms, these are the songs and the prayers of people upon the earth. Not in a perfect world, but these are the, the prayers of those who live in this broken world. The more we live in this world affected by sin, marred and corrupted by sin, enduring the consequence of, of God's curse... The more we sense this is not the way it's supposed to be, the more we're made aware, aren't we, of, of our own sin. And in God's hand, our trials in this broken world may serve to humble our pride and to open our eyes. And therefore, this opening of Psalm 143 is quite remarkable, that David has enemies, wicked men who are doing wickedly to him, but as he comes before God and prays God would hear him, he immediately comes to verse 2, Don't enter into judgment with me. Don't, don't judge me in terms of your strict justice. No one in your sight, no one living in your sight is righteous. And you say, well, how does David come to that point so quickly? Well, maybe it's verse 1. He, he prays at the end of verse 1, in your faithfulness answer me and in your righteousness. But no sooner does he pray, pray that, that God, who always does right, would do righteously. Then he must be aware. Lord, if you did what was right towards me, I... I would be destroyed. God's righteousness brings David up short. What if God gave me what I deserve? David may be innocent with regard to these enemies. Maybe the innocent party. They're the wrongdoers. He's not. And yet, wherever we see sin, wickedness, sorrows in this world, we are reminded that they're all traced back to us, to the Garden of Eden, to our parents, to our rebellion. All the sorrows of this world remind us we betrayed God. We brought down the curse. 
And so sin or guilt is not a mere theological truth for the catechism room. It's certainly not something that you, you, know, you learned when you were young. Okay, I'm a sinner. I said that. Now I move on. It's not the case. This life that we live till we see Christ's face is a life of growing in the knowledge of our sin and our need of his mercies. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. Don't judge me according to your strict justice, but have mercy upon me, Lord. It's in the midst of David's turmoil here that he senses his own depravity, doesn't he? Now, the Lord doesn't take pleasure. He does not take pleasure in the trials of his people. And yet, the adversities of this life are a rod of correction, aren't they, in the hand of the Father who disciplines those he loves. They are, they are so many correcting forces to lead us to pray with a humble heart. Pray that God would search us to recognize our neediness before him. Every, every trial we endure in this life is a, is a cause for self-examination. It's an occasion to humble our hearts before God and say, Lord, show me my neediness. Show me what I am apart from you. If we had to make a case based on our own merit or righteousness, what could we bring before God? What could we present as evidence that we deserve God's favor? No, all human righteousness is worthless in God's eyes. And yet too often we have the sense that God is as easily satisfied as people are. And people are generally pretty easily satisfied. If you talk nice to them, if you smile at them, if you give them a small gift, why, they'll love you. People are quite easily pacified. Is God like that? Does the righteous judge just forget all we've thought, all the wicked things we've said, all the... All the ways we refuse to obey him? No, he's the creator. He's the God who sees all things. He's the holy judge to whom we owe our entire lives. We can't just smile at God or wink at God and it's all good. David says that in your sight, in the sight of you, the living God, no one living is righteous. Well, that's countercultural. Most people would say, in your sight, everyone living is righteous except for those bad guys. Don't judge me according to your strict justice, but according to your mercy in the Messiah. David, he's looking, isn't he? He's hoping for one who will give him righteousness. Now, brothers and sisters, as you read this in verse 2, do you imagine this is the first time David's ever thought about his sin? Would you imagine it's the first time he's ever confessed sin in his life? Of course not. But isn't it remarkable that however many times he's thought about sin and confessed sin before, he hasn't moved beyond it. Of all these things, we must know to live and die in the joy of this comfort, sin, salvation, service. None of them are things that we just master, and then proceed to move on with other things in life. There are, there are each realities that we have to reckon with each day. Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts daily. We, we're always debtors to grace. We never arrive, never able to stand on our own two feet and say, now, Lord, I can present myself. Sin. Our sin, we have to know our sin. To live in the joy of this comfort, to die in the joy of this comfort, we have to know our sin and know it more and more. 
Are we weary of that? Would we get angry about that? Would we say, God, you haven't respected my dignity as a person? Then we wouldn't know ourselves very well. We wouldn't know God very well. The way to experience comfort in Jesus Christ is to know our sin. And you really can't know any more of Christ in his salvation than you know of your sin, right? Because where we minimize the problem, we minimize the Savior. If, we, if our problem is very small, then Jesus is a very small Savior. But the more we come to recognize the reality that I, by nature, am wicked, I am guilty, I'm deserving of eternal punishment, then how great is the Savior God has given? And so we're thankful for the preaching of God's Word that shows us God and shows us ourselves. And we're thankful that in the hand of God our trials lead us to realize our sin. Imagine if things went just the way we wanted every day of our lives. Every day we went to work, things worked out just as we had planned. Every relationship was just perfect. We were never sick, we never got hurt, never had any sorrows. Our hearts would swell with pride. But it is the thorns and thistles that God has sown in this world that are The things that prick and pop the swollen head of pride and bring us up short so we fall on our faces and plead for mercy. Now, it's not easy, is it? I mean, you look at verses 3 and 4, and David is simply overwhelmed. The enemy has persecuted my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He's made me dwell in darkness like those who've been dead. In verse 4, therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. David is close to despair, isn't he? These are deep, deep trials. And yet he begins with sin, doesn't he? And then he expresses how deep the sorrows are. And he's not afraid to tell God that he's almost plunged into the pit of despair, that he's nearly fainted. You see, the sin that we're talking about this evening and the days to come in the catechism is not some private matter that we wouldn't want to tell God about. The reason God shows us our sin is that we might fall before him and confess what he already knows. If you look back to the previous psalm, Psalm 142, it it makes that clear. Psalm 142, prayer of David when he was in the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice, with my voice to the Lord I make supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. You knew my path. You knew how bad it was. And you knew the way out when I thought there was no way of escape. You knew, Lord, my path in this darkness. We don't have to downplay our sin. We don't have to downplay our trials. God is not a God who's far off, who doesn't understand, who doesn't know. In fact, the Son of God has come to earth, taken up our nature. He's lived here with us in this broken world. No sense then in pretending, is there? 
We have to know our sins and miseries. Not because we need to tell God who doesn't know, but because if we'll experience the comfort of Jesus Christ, we have to know how desperately we need him. So God gives us prayers here, Psalm 142, Psalm 143, a whole host of psalms in which we're invited, actually, to say to God, these enemies are killing me. I am in darkness. My spirit's overwhelmed. My heart is distressed. And I'm a guilty sinner before you. The only other option is to play like the world does, that things are not so bad. It's getting better every day. Evolutionary process. Man's ingenuity. We're going to spruce things up. We can take care of that. That's a dead end. The people of God fall on their face. And so God uses these trials, doesn't he, to humble our pride. Trials of themselves don't do that. In fact, many people under trials become hardened. Hardened in their hatred of God, hardened in their self-sufficiency. But it is the grace of God to bring us humility through trials. By the Spirit's gentle power, trials humble us and soften us and strip us of self-righteousness and self-confidence. And so it's bad news for our sin nature tonight, our proud nature, to hear that we never get past sin until Jesus comes back. This life is an increasing humiliation of our proud nature. That's what this life is. This life is the humiliation of our proud nature. And as long as we try to shield that proud nature and preserve that proud nature, then we are in constant conflict with God and with other people. But when we're willing to see that proud nature destroyed, and to confess, I have nothing in myself, then you see we're enjoying the comfort of what God brings us in Jesus Christ. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. It's not the righteous who need a savior, but the unrighteous. So we must know our sin all the days of our lives. But merely knowing sin is not enough. Judas knew something of his sin, but he was hopeless and knew no comfort. We must know, secondly tonight, salvation. We must know grace. We must know grace. And that's the second thing we see intertwined in this prayer of David. We have to know what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We have to know the mediator, the only mediator between God and man. We have to know God's beloved son sent to earth, assuming our nature, dying in our place, rising again. We must know salvation. And this too, the second thing we must know to live and die in the joy, the comfort, is again not something that we master and move on from. It's not why I learned Jesus died on the cross when I was five years old. I'm way beyond that. Well, no, not at all. Living in the comfort means meditating on it, trusting in it, remembering it, praying about it. You notice what David says in verse 5, in the midst of his overwhelmed heart, verse 5, I remember the days of old, I meditate on all your works, I muse on the work of your hands. 
Three words. Remember, meditate, muse. David thinks about the creator God and all that he's made, but also about his works of salvation. Whole Bible is the story of God delivering his people, right? From the start, right? Adam and Eve sin, and what does God do? He comes in the garden and pronounces the gospel. A son who will crush the serpent's head. What does God do in the flood? He destroys the whole earth, but he lifts up eight people in a boat. Preserves them alive. What does God do through Moses? He breaks the arm of Pharaoh the tyrant and leads his people out. What does God do through David? He destroys Goliath and the Philistines. Story of Scripture is a story of God's mercies. And David says, here when my heart is overwhelmed, I'm going to remember, I'm going to meditate upon your salvation. How you delivered your people, how you forgave your rebellious people, how you showed compassion and love. Now tonight we've seen great David's greater son, who offered himself in our place and paid our debt and won for us a great deliverance. And the Heidelberg Catechism will detail what kind of a savior do we need. He has to be God, he has to be man, he has to be righteous. Who could this be? It's David's son, the Lord Jesus. So we have to grow to appreciate that, and then we have to grow in trust. If we would live and die in the joyless comfort, we, we have to walk in fellowship with this Savior, looking to him alone. So it's remarkable that this psalm goes on now with, with David having looked away from himself. I have nothing, God. He comes with this laser-like focus to ask everything of the Lord. He, verse 5, remembers all God has done. That's a stabilizing thing to do, isn't it? It's a way, as somebody said, of getting one's own bearings, right? When, when, when turmoil and trials are strong, to remember what God has already done for us. To remember the gospel, to remember salvation in Christ. But then out of that comes verse 6, I spread out my hands to you. I reach for you, I open myself to you, I long for you like a thirsty land. And then verse 7, answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. Verse 8, cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you do I trust. See what's happened, David comes with his great need before the Lord, he, he confesses his sin, I have nothing. And then he looks to God, remembers what God has done to save his people, and then he He reaches for God. You are everything. I have nothing but what's found in you. And we know it in New Testament language that you are the way and the truth and the life. And I can't come to the Father but through you. Christ has come, hasn't he? For us. And David prays in verse 9 that God would deliver him from his enemies. In you I take shelter, and we know that our Lord Jesus came for that purpose, to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, verse 8. There is no deliverance without destruction. There are enemies that must be destroyed. Satan is a liar, a deceiver, an accuser, a destroyer. Christ died on the cross to remove our guilt, to triumph over death, to break Satan's hold on us. And then David prays in verse 11, Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake, 
For your righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And you compare that to verse 2, where David says, I have no righteousness. No one living is righteous in your eyes. And now he prays, God, revive my heart. Deliver me out of trouble for your righteousness' sake. I can't plead my righteousness, but I will plead your righteousness. And that's what we're learning to do as we talk about salvation or grace. And that's what the Catechism reminds us to do. Meditate upon the kind of Savior God has given you. He answers to all the qualifications. He's done all the work perfectly. You may plead his name always, all the time, in every trial. Not for my righteousness' sake. I have no righteousness, but for your righteousness' sake. Somebody would say, well, how come you're pleading righteousness? Don't you want to plead mercy? Well, we plead both. But remember, 1 John 1.8 says that if we confess our sins, that God is righteous to forgive us our sins. God keeps his word to his people. God is just. Jesus paid for our sins, so God will not charge us with them ever again. God is faithful and just, faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. So as we learn more and more then to rest in Jesus, to look everything for him, to spread out our hands and say, you alone, Lord, can bring me deliverance. Then finally, we're learning to live the life of gratitude, guilt, grace, and gratitude. The heart of no obedience, heart that loves the Lord and wants to please him. You know, we're not always... So aware are we as Christians of this great reversal that's taken place in us. If we've lived long in the Christian faith, we, we forget. Or if we grew up in a Christian hall, maybe we didn't have a dramatic turning point. And we, we can't see sometimes a great change in our lives. But talk to those who were unbelieving as adults and then were converted, and they can tell you of the change, right? One guy in prison would say, you, you wouldn't want to know me in my former life. I was a gangbanger. I hurt people. I was dangerous. But now, in Bible classes, he's pursuing the Lord. You see, he sees a change in his life. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Titus chapter 2. The grace of the Lord that has appeared and has changed everything. Titus 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We have learned Jesus Christ. Wherever the believers found them, we have thankful hearts towards the Lord. And in David's psalm here, we witness this new heart because David doesn't merely pray to be rescued from his troubles. Remember, James says sometimes we, we don't get what we ask for because we pray amiss that we may just spin it on our own desires. But David isn't praying just for his own desires, but he wants to serve the Lord. Notice verse 8b. He says, Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. The way I should walk. Not the quickest 
route out of danger, not the easiest path out of this jungle, but show me the right way. And then in verse 10 again, teach me to do your will, not my will, not the easy way, not the comfortable way. Teach me to do your will for you are my God. You are my God. David prays out of desire, not of some reluctance. That I have to do what you say, but Lord, you are my God. I love you. You've made me your own. Teach me, therefore, to do your will. That's a new life, isn't it? Life of the believer. A new obedience. Maybe I told you a story before of the woman that the famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon was interviewing for church membership 150 or 200 years ago. And she was a a servant. She was a housemate. When he came to the question, you know, what evidence in your life is there that you believe on the Lord Jesus now? She replied, well, I sweep under the rugs now. I live a new life. I, I go about my work tomorrow in a different way. I want to do not the easy thing at work, but the right thing. I want to do not the easy thing in my home and marriage, but what pleases you. I am your servant, Lord. You are my God. So the Heidelberg Catechism will say, in effect, well, if you mean that, then you're going to study what God's will is. And so the Catechism in the third section expounds the Ten Commandments one by one by one. If you mean it, you want to follow God, then you'll study God's will. And then it expounds the Lord's Prayer, six petitions one by one. If you mean it, then this life of gratitude, you're going to learn how to pray. A new heart. But David senses that he needs grace to walk in this way. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. Teach me to do your will. One commentator writes, On that verse 10, teach me to do your will. The psalmist desires more than external help. He needs to be kept in the way of rectitude by the guidance of God's Spirit. For all sorts of false emotions, anxiety, fear, languor, even disease and pain, as well as temptation that go with them, can make us impulsive to react wrongly. Thus, God must teach us much more than theology as an abstraction, but by his Spirit so enlighten our minds and engrave his instruction upon our willing and obedient hearts that we live out his truth in the most intimate way. David realizes that in the trials of life we do act impulsively, don't we? I know I do. When we're afraid or when we're angry or when we're frustrated, we react We don't need to just know what the rules are, what the right way. We need it written on our hearts. We need the Spirit's guidance internally. And so you see, with the third thing too, gratitude or service. It's not something we learn once and then move on from. Because the command we thought we mastered yesterday might be the greatest trial of our life tomorrow. When placed in a new circumstance with a new trial, 
And we have to learn again, Lord, how now here in this may I please you? So this is the basis of the Christian life. And yet it's something we never master. To learn guilt and grace and gratitude. But the good news tonight is this. You don't have to master it. To live and die in the joy of the comfort. You have to be willing to live it. You don't have to master it. None of us do. But you have to be willing to live this. To take your heart in hand before the face of God. And confess your sin. And even in the midst of trials when people are wronging you to say, Lord, but I know in this broken world I too am guilty. And in the overwhelming times, not to wallow in self-pity, but to say, I will remember what the Lord has done. I will take my mind back and rehearse the works of the Lord, how gracious he's been to his people, how good he's been to me. Look what he did at the cross. And then take your will in hand and go to God and say, Lord, show me the way so that I'll walk in it. You are my God. I have no other. You're the one I want to serve. You're the one I love. I know I fail you, but I want to follow you. And as we do all of that, guilt, grace, and gratitude, and then we're back to Lord's Day 1. For I am your servant. I live and die in the joy of this comfort that I belong to you, Lord Jesus. I am your servant. May God help us to live out the comfort, to live richly, to live as kings, not to sit on a pile of wealth we never touch, but to live out of the abundance of riches in Christ. We are the people of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are patient with us, that you bring us through many trials. Our proud hearts hate being humbled, and yet we're humbled daily. Thank you that you send your spirit into our griefs and fears, into our trials and persecutions, to lead us to yourself, not away from yourself. But God, we acknowledge our sin before you. We can't blame the worldling for the world's mess. We were there in the garden, in our father Adam, and we've committed our hosts of sins personally. And yet, Father, we remember the cross of the Lord Jesus. What a Savior you've given to us, your own beloved Son, and true human nature, to really take our place beneath your wrath. And Father, we do confess that you are God. We want to follow you. Would you teach us your will? Would you revive us by your spirit? Would you help us in this week to live in a way that glorifies you? Help us not to take the easy way, but the right way. Resting in your power, hopeful of the coming of the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.